Good. All right. So this is we're about we're on part two of maybe a five part episode. Well, just let me know when you have to go, and uh, you know I'm very cognizant of that. Will do. But I totally emptied my bladder, so about a minute ago. As did I. I peed my pants. Whoa. (laughs) I'm leaving that in, Adam. (laughs) Doke. That's the that's the intro (laughs) to every episode. Even with other directors, at some point you get Mark Romanic on, and it just the episode starts with me going, "I peed my pants." <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Ron Small with the second episode of this podcast, which you can find at swayproductions.com or on iTunes. This is the final part of my two-part Adam Lizagore interview. One of the things I wanted to mention about Adam is that he encompasses two aspects of commercial type production that I'm interested in exploring throughout the course of however many episodes I do of the show, one of which is the creative side, the concepting, copywriting, etc., and the other side is that of production, putting together the, uh, the pieces of casting, editing, effects, music, and so on. Adam is in a really enviable position in that he has the opportunity to do both. He creates his own concepts and gets to produce and direct them. That's rarely the case in commercial production where often the, uh, the director is following or handling a concept created by someone else. That's typically the scenario I'll find myself in. Usually I'm working directly with a, uh, with a client or their marketing person and I'm, I'm given a, a direction or concept that needs to be fleshed out. In some cases, I've had more control than others, but a lot of times I'm doing what a client wants, but in my style or whatever style I can bring to it, and that tends to vary project to project. Adam's style, his his approach, is one of his selling points. In this episode, we talk about some of his specific spots and how he went about creating the concepts for them, and we go into some production details, like budgeting, casting, and so on. Again, I recommend checking out his website, sandwichvideo.com and watching some of his work before listening to this as we do get into some specifics. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to French Press Films for their completely awesome Foxtails Brigade music video entitled I'm Not Really in the Mood for Christmas This Year. You can find it by searching for it on YouTube. The video was shot by my exquisitely bearded friend, the uh, the great cinematographer Jesse Dana, and directed by the used-to-be-awesomely-bearded Andrew Junker. And it's wonderfully anti-Christmas, which, uh, which being a Jew, I can totally relate to and support. I don't really mean that. I, I actually legitimately love Christmas. Um, any excuse to, uh, to drink eggnog and watch Bad Santa is a good one for me. And also the, uh, the pretty lights everywhere don't hurt. They, uh, they bring me a lot of joy. Uh, anyway, check that out and check Adam out. So what's your approach to, to a product? Like, for instance, when... When uh, like Jawbone comes to you with the the Jambox thing, or or you're doing a video for uh, for Warby Parker, like how do you go about concepting uh, something like that? Do you do you tend to write out these concepts yourself, or or do you work with a copywriter? Those are unique cases, both of those, because um, they're both such great, great, great products. And have you used a Jambox? Have you seen one in person? I have not. I've only seen your video. Okay, so. Um, it was the first meeting that I had with Jawbone up in San Francisco and they had invited, I'd been in talks with, yeah, I'd been in, um, communication with the CEO of the company and he invited me to come in and cause he wanted to just talk about working together. 
And the first thing I saw was he put down on the conference table this tiny little box and turned it on and then started playing a movie. Um, uh, and it just like it was so loud and sounded so pristine and great. And then he played some music and then he played a video game. And it was almost like I felt like I'd been teleported to some you – know, I, I, I felt like I was being – given a look into something that I wasn't supposed to see, like some, some, some mil some future or some like military compound where they discovered an alien technology. Like, did you ever see, um, what's that David Bowie movie? Uh, the man who fell from the, the man who fell to earth. Yes, exactly. Yes. It was like that. It was like, you were like David they, Bowie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm yeah, you know that that actually that 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 kind of comes across in the video because it's um it's like a really immersive video, you know. It's you go from one situation to another where um you know, a guys in a meeting and uh and then he's uh, he's at a nightclub and then he's right. playing a video game and then he's watching a movie like this creepy movie. Like right. that that actually that that meeting it, it feels like the genesis for for the concept almost. Yeah, totally because the idea is you you it's this multi-purpose tool, right? Mm -hmm. I used to I used to love the idea of a Swiss army knife. I don't know why. It's just so cool. And the, the more tools, the better. And it's just this simple little box that has the potential to really um, improve and transform so many of the experiences that we're used to being sort of like marginal and oops, my, I got to turn my phone on to vibrate, but who is used to such great, nobody's used to such great sound. Um, that they can carry around with them unless it's their headphones. So, I mean, long story short, the product was so great. And then um, they said they had a lot of, like, different products for me to, to work on, but to do videos for. And, but this was the one that was just blew my mind. And I, and I came home, and I even before they asked, I wrote a treatment. And that was just basically what the video turned out to be, which is just a, a guy walks into, you know, the white psych and he sets it down and all of a sudden the space sort of transforms around him. It was the idea, right? Um, and it's done in a very lo-fi way. There's no visual effects on the surface to, to transform the space from one to the other. It's just good old-fashioned editing. It just cuts. Because I come from a visual effects background and one of the things that I find myself saying far too often as though it means something is that um, and though, and as though I'm the first person to say it, is uh, like is that the edit was the first special effect, um, the the cut, just the simple cut, to um, bridge the gap between two separate spaces or times. And I guess really the first special effect was just exposing film in general. But um, once we got that sorted. Uh, the, somebody discovered how to use the edit to do all sorts of, of amazing things, and it's a it's a pleasure when coming from a place where visual effects is now used to do so much that to accomplish so much in terms of telling a story. It's a it's it's fun to just like get to go back and go live uh, go lo-fi like that. It seemed a great way to communicate the experience um, of the variety of potential for the product. And then, uh, so I just, I wrote the treatment, which is, um, you know, just a couple paragraphs uh, of text, not even any visual references. 
and I like to, I also like pride myself on this probably falsehood that if an idea is solid enough, you can communicate it in a couple of paragraphs of text. Um, you know, and I, uh, I've had enough exposure to the commercial world where you see um, directors pitching projects to agencies by putting together these huge booklets of glossy photos and lookbooks and um, style guides and everything, and then, and then just heartbreakingly not getting the job, but they have this beautiful artifact of a treatment or whatever. And, you know, lots of it's a stock photography, lots of it is just cut out pictures. Yeah, and, and what do you do with that after, you know, after you what don't do get you the do job? With it? What do you do with it? It just seems like such a, a waste of, of energy and everything. It's so like I an artifact of failure. It's just like... The, just, <laughs> Looking at you like, oh, what what happened? What went yeah, wrong? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that's that's exactly right. Let, let's go back a little bit. You mentioned that Warby mm -hmm. Parker was kind of an interesting case as well um, in terms of uh, yeah. of of how that was concepted out. Sure, sure. Well, f um, it, first of all, what a cool brand, right? And offering a really, really like much sorely needed product in the in in uh, in a space where there wasn't really anything like it. Because everybody that wears glasses knows that you go into lens crafters and there's like a sort, you know, sort of a limited amount of inventory and it's all overpriced. And wait a second, you're gonna you're gonna charge me for what? And then you're gonna charge me more for the coating on that thing? And it's just like not a fun process. There's so much friction, and then you end up with something you don't like. And then the alternative to that is to go into a boutique and you know be faced with a lot of frames with rhinestones in, in um, asymmetrical shapes. Um, and you end up looking like Hollywood from the movie Mannequin. Oh, uh, oh, do you remember Hollywood? Of course. I watched that movie Taylor. constantly on, on HBO. <laughs> I even saw the, the horrible sequel, Mannequin 2. So oh, yeah, I Mannequin. saw that in the theater, Adam. You saw that in the theater? So I was, I. like, one of the five people, uh, you know, like, I, I think I was, like, in the fourth grade or, or something when that came I out. I think I was in that theater as well. Well, we saw it on the same day, I'm pretty I, sure. And it, it had the guy from uh, Herman's Head. I don't know if you remember that show. He was, the, sure, he was kind of the Herman's Andrew Head. McCarthy stand-in. Oh, really? Did Andrew McCarthy get replaced? Yeah, he was. For Mannequin 2? I mean, I he did Weekend of Bernie's 2, but, but no uh, Mannequin 2. That's what I must have been thinking. Was Jonathan Zilverman in, uh, Man in the Mannequin movies? No, no, no. He's uh, no. He, no, was he definitely like, wasn't. Please, please, yeah. Come on. Jeez, I was I was so hopped up on Quaaludes in the fourth grade. I just didn't even, <laughs> it all blends together. You know, I just saw uh, Weekend of Bernie's uh, again recently. Yeah. It's such a bizarre movie. It's it's really a dark movie. You know, and it, who it, who green who greenlit? I don't that? even <laughs> understand. It's it's so bizarre to me that that happened. And then there, there was a sequel. And in the yeah. sequel, he's like a zombie. Like he's. He's being controlled by these voodoo guys, and it's it's very yeah. disconcerting. Oh, I didn't realize there was a supernatural element no, to the, the they, sequel. No, they introduce, uh, you know, into the mythology of Weekend of Bernie's, they introduce the supernatural uh, Yeah, element. I guess that's how they explain away the smell, because yeah. invariably, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, at some point around the second sequel, rigor mortis starts to set in, and people start wondering, what's Bernie doing here? It, and, and you know what's so weird about the first one is there's a scene where this um you know this woman goes and she 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 goes into Bernie's room and he's just laying there and she she has sex with him ostensibly and you don't see it you just you know you hear it well and, it was and, the 80s and nobody knew what sex was we just thought it meant rubbing up against somebody's dockers yeah no but it's it's like what what the fuck happened in there you know like i i i want to know what what's going on it 
it's just so weird that that scene exists, you know, and it's just... It's almost like the Revenge of the Nerds scene where Lewis, with the Darth Vader mask, mask on, <laughs> yes, he, essentially he rapes a girl and then it becomes romantic. Oh, my God. And she's like, uh, you were so good at that, you know. And yeah. Like, well, well, you this were is really... what nerds do. We just think about <laughs> yeah. sex. Wow, nerd, you're not threatening to me at all when you raped me. Right. Thanks. <laughs> I thought you were my jock boyfriend and oh, now you're you. Dumb. Oh, the 80s. Now yeah. we understand how it sort of all happened. Uh, anyway, we're, what were we talking about? I Warby don't Parker. know. Commercials. Yeah. Commercial production. Oh, right. I was pitching Warby Parker because apparently I'm still on their, on their payroll. So they had done a, they had done just like a really nice job with their product and what a great brand. And it was something that um, it was something that it was a type of product that I hadn't gotten the chance to work with before. And um, so I didn't know necessarily what it was going to do, but I, then I had this idea, and I was out with the, the guy in the video is Noah, uh, Noah Kalina, a f- the photographer. Um, I feel like I've seen him uh, in another uh, commercial recently. What, was it? Was he in um, the Mark Romanek? Uh, yeah. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah, for Chevy, I think. Yeah. Um, it was a Super Bowl spot that he was in, and which is really cool because he's got a great face. And he and I became friends over the internet, and he was in L.A. visiting for a job. And uh, we, we went out to uh, – actually, no, it was, the job was that we were making the, video, the everyday video for the, for the app, for the uh, everyday app that, that my friend William uh, Wilkinson had made. Yeah, so that was uh, – th- that's kind of like a lo-fi sort of video. Was, was that something that you shot yourself? Uh, no, no, Noah, Noah shot that. Okay, got it. Yeah. And uh, so that video was based on Noah's everyday project. And I mean, the app was based on that. And then the video was for the app. And so he was out here in L.A. We were shooting that. We went out for a burger. And um, I was telling him that Warby Parker had gotten in touch with me. And I had this idea um, that was sort of centered around the, the, the centered around a character who is sort of obsessed with his, his face and his own looks and really wanted the right pair of glasses and so, um, and so he had these masks made, and like, uh, and the and it really it comes from one of my favorite comedies of all time, um, which is uh, uh, what the hell is the name? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Give me just a second. Uh-huh. I'm having a hard time with names. What's your name again? I'm Ron, sir. Um, yes. Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Bo- yeah, right. Bowfinger. Right. Right. The so, scene where with uh, Eddie Murphy. When Eddie Murphy. The, uh, yeah, yeah, where he has the mask. And he says, put, do the face, do the face. Yeah, I look good in that. He has his assistant put up the, you know, try on his clothes at the store so he doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah, we've seen the movie, Adam. Yeah. yeah. And then what happens? Yeah. And then uh-huh. and then Steve Martin puts on a fake ponytail. So he's got these masks. And I just think that's the funniest thing. But what, like just to do a kind of a weird nod towards that, and then uh, I was telling Noah about the idea, and he was like, oh, could I be in it? And I said, what? Well, what? That's just so ridiculous. It just might work. And then, um, and, and then it turned out that the Warby, Pe- the Warby Parker people were so, you know, they knew who Noah was, and they're, they're all New York-based, and they're a really hip company, and they know who Noah is, who's Brooklyn-based. And, of course, it just made, made sense. And that what was funny is that I um, – I wrote this treatment, but I really wanted to pitch it to them in in person, like on the call. 
So I was on the conference call with um, a marketing person, the, one of the founders, Neil, and um, one, other, one other person. There are three of them on the, on the other line, on the Polycom, and then me in L.A., and, uh, and I go, and I go, okay, here's the idea. And then I start talking and I'm telling it and I spend about 90 seconds talking them through the idea and it's got Noah and there's the masks and the models and then they, and they put in, then there's the UPS guy and, and then, and that, that's the idea. What do you think? And then I hear silence, 15 seconds of silence and my heart just sinks, like goes to my ankles. And then all of a sudden I hear, are you there? Adam, are you there? And then uh, I guess what had happened was uh, they had heard the whole pitch, and then for the next 15 seconds we're talking about how great it is and how much they loved it uh. <laughs> and how much they wanted to do it, and I heard none of that. So I thought that they hated me and hated my idea, and I'd lost the job. It was really important. <laughs> this, was re- this one was a really important idea to me, and I really wanted to do it. I was almost like I just, if they weren't going to agree to do it, I, I would have just shot it myself or something. And, and then, uh, so they approved it and approved the budget and we went out to New York and shot it for, you know, relatively low cost in one day. And was that a set or was that, um, like somebody's studio? No, it was, it was somebody's loft. It was, uh, it was a, it was a Williamsburg loft that ended up just having just the great, nice look and the color of the walls was awesome and the quality of the light was great. And, um... I was so excited to shoot it that the the night before I couldn't sleep. So I That happens to me all the time. I didn't get a wink of sleep and I and I was just like brain dead and delirious the whole next day while we were shooting. Well you did and, a great job. Oh well thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That here, was a fun here I go again. Yeah, stop it. Stop <laughs> that. Stop you. Tell 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 me which one of tell tell me which of my work sucked. Maybe the the one that's uh um the it's like a the geek handbook one i i don't think oh, it's yeah, my favorite yeah. but you know it's i don't think it's bad no i understand the the the, the being good, the being geek yeah. book trailer right and yeah. i and i'm just you know i'm just bringing that up for balance because i'm just like i i'm like endlessly looking at your balls here and it's just like you know what is this i totally get you I, and it's not it's not my favorite thing either you know you know as well as i that the more stuff you do the better the more you have to be okay with uh, you know, in a way, failing a little bit, you know, and not everyone being as great as you wanted it to be. It's very rare that I'll finish something and go, that was just the best thing ever, and I made no mistakes through the entire process. Were you interested in going into filmmaking to be a filmmaker? Yeah, when I when I was a kid, I wanted to make movies, and I wanted to make silly comedies, because um, yeah, I worshipped... Like mannequin. <laughs> Like you saw a mannequin and you're like, I want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, how do they do that? Like, she's not even a real girl. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then yet again, she is a real girl. Right. And, and and the opening of that movie is like in Egypt. And she's like, and they, they she's like a, I think she's like a princess and they change her into. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. how did they even get a camera to Egypt? I know. Like, to ancient it's, Egypt. It just boggles the mind. Yeah. So yeah. that was what I wanted to do. I just looked at the, I looked at my. Um, parents and I said, I, I want to do need, that. I them. need to make mannequin. I need to. Anyway, when you were younger, you wanted to make uh, what exactly? What what movies were you watching? 
Um, I used to watch Kentucky Fried Movie on a, on a near daily basis. Yeah, I never saw that, but I, I I've always you know I always hear about that as being an influence for a lot of people. You should you should um, you should watch that and the, the Zucker Brothers stuff and Mo- Monty Python. Um, Monty Python. I was obsessed with British absurdist comedy. You know, like well, just Monty Python basically. But I would watch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> when I, no, I, I used to watch it. Faulty Towers. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. Faulty Towers too. Right. I, but I would just watch those movies over and 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 over again. And not to the not 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 necessarily like I knew that it was totally lame to quote Monty Python all the time with your friends. I didn't really, you know, there's there's got there there was some self consciousness self awareness to the the Python infatuation. I mean, like the pinnacle of comedy for me is the scene in. Life of Brian. Actually, just the life of Brian in general is, I think, maybe the best comedy ever made. But anyway, that was what I, I I didn't necessarily want to make those movies, but that was what I learned. Those were the reference point that I learned to teach myself about um, the camera and things like editing and visual jokes and stuff. Well, what what kind of stuff did you want to make when you were, you know, you went to film school, right? So you. Right. Well, by that that time, I had spent all of high school. Um, going to Blockbuster my, by myself and walking out with a stack of VHS cassettes to watch over the weekend, and most of that, you know, once it, once I had exhausted all of the new releases shelf, you know, sometime in eighth grade, then I moved on to the inner, the inner sanctum of the Blockbuster store where all the, the classics and the art films and the foreign films were, and then I just like, you know, I learned about like Robert Altman, and I learned about Jim Jarmusch, and. Um, Scorsese and all these other like really interesting foreign directors and like I know I mean for me when I went to NYU Jarmish was was the end-all be-all of filmmaking mm-hmm. um, you know it's interesting that actually just, your your style reminds me a little bit of um, of Wes Anderson in terms of your compositions and things like that yeah it's hard not to be influenced that by that guy because he's defined a lot of our visual culture for for this decade, I think, you know. Yeah. You mentioned before that, that you um, you have a producer that you work with and, and you're just hiring an employee. Uh, what, what's the dynamic between you and your producer? Is that, is that someone you bring on to each project? Yeah, on a freelance basis, for sure. I don't really have, I don't really want to take on the overhead of a full-time, of a full-time executive staff right now. Although I can definitely see the benefit of doing that. It's really more fun if, you know, because I'm a freelancer, I've been a freelancer and I've been a staffer and it's way more fun to be a freelancer. It's a little bit more um, stressful at times because you don't know necessarily what your next thing is. But I think that if people have the freedom to go from project to project and keep it, um, keep a variety of interesting things going on at once, then they're more likely to bring, um, you know, bring something unique and special to the experience. Do you get stressed out about about what your next project might be? I mean, it looks like you have so many um, projects. You're you're doing like two videos a month. It looks like just about. Yeah, I'm I'm in the really really fortunate position of getting stressed out from for having too much too many um, upcoming things to do and too many to choose from. So nanny nanny nanny. <laughs> <laughs> when when you were starting out and you were doing uh you know the the Genentech stuff and Square and Flipboard uh, at the beginning of all this was it easy for you to get clients uh, were they were they coming to you or did you have to do some work in regard to that No I've never done any outreach in that way um 
really I wasn't looking for it when it happened. So the first the first client that, to come to me was Genentech, and I wasn't expecting it. I didn't re- even realize that it was something that I could do um, for money. And it, so it wasn't. Sorry, I keep bumping my microphone. Um, That's right. It so, makes you human. <laughs> I am not. I'm. I'm not a machine. Um, yeah. So, like, if you're not if if you're not looking for the work, if it's just coming by accident, even sporadically, even you know, it was months be- between um, doing the Genentech thing and then whatever the next thing was. If you're not looking for it, then it makes you less desperate in your um, appeal to the client, right? Um, the the most powerful thing you can do as a freelancer and a business person is is um, have the freedom and the ability to say no if something just doesn't feel right. And have you have you since you've been doing this, you, you've never had to take a project just to pay the bills? No, absolutely not. I've taken um, maybe one or two that. Um, we're, we're most, we're, uh, sort of disproportionately appealing because of the, because of the budget involved, but I wouldn't know if it was something crappy, you know, I do, I've, I'm racking up my fair share of bigger, bigger names, bigger corporate names that I've, that I've been able to sort of turn down because I know in my heart, it's not the right thing to do. What is, um, I don't know if you can talk about this, but what's like a typical, budget range for something that you're doing now like no absolutely that. i'm i'm happy to talk about it because i answer it's the first question out of every um potential client's mouth and a lot of times they just don't know and they come they come sheepishly and they ask as if it's awkward which it is and it's uncomfortable to talk about which it is but hell somebody has to pay for it right so um you know generally speaking what i say is that my st- my the 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 market sort of sets my the the value of what I'm doing and um, generally they start at around fifty fifty thousand um, dollars and go up from there and I haven't gone higher than the low six the lower six figures and nor nor should I I don't I don't really see the need for for that kind of more ridiculous spending they are expensive but um, really if you break it all down. I mean, you know how this stuff works. You know how yeah. much production costs. If you break it all down to the outsider who's not familiar with how, how where the money goes, it it's seems like, like whoa, that's hey, ridiculous. Easy, All you need yeah. is a DSLR, and right, that costs yeah. like two thousand dollars. And really, the reason I was able to be profitable at all when I first start, you know, in my first year, is because I just like one of the most expensive parts of the process is the post production because it can go on indefinitely. You're not restricted by the number of shoot days because it's not so tied to the, the man hours that you're very clearly having your client pay for. So um, because I was doing all of that myself from very early on, I would just write off my hours. So I didn't even consider it, you know, I considered it free time. Um, but so I'm editing, you know, for two weeks straight and I'm comping for 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 a week at the end of that and doing all the color and the sound mix and sometimes the music and everything and now that's stuff that the budget pays for for other people to do but in the very beginning it was stuff that i knew how to do so it was a way of you know staying in the black and uh when did you when did you stop doing that oh not till very recently and i still haven't stopped actually i mean 
I just did a big thing for Jamba, uh, for Jawbone. And, uh, if it's something that like, I, I know that the, so I had a real, like this sort of a singular vision that I knew was going to be difficult to, um, to communicate. Um, and I had, uh, an assistant editor spend time with the dailies and just do all the all the work of organizing and he did a pass at a cut. And then, you know, I just kind of, if it's something that I feel really strongly about whatever the vision is, and I know that it's going to take me just like, uh, you know, a week of plowing through it and just experimenting. And that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm more comfortable doing myself rather than sort of trying to by brute force pay somebody like steer from the, from behind, from the couch behind the editor um do you do you cut your own stuff i see that in some of the credits on your commercial page you've you're you've got an editor credit so yeah i I usually do uh because i i feel like like i've already sort of edited it in my head you know like i I already kind of have a grasp of what i want Mm -hmm. i mean like i generally do maybe like an average of seven to seven to ten takes on everything on every shot Mm -hmm. and it's really it's it's more readily apparent to me now, having worked with other with a variety of different editors, that it really can come down to taste. and the, And the best take for from my perspective is, you know, is take seven. Somebody else uses take three, and you're like, "What were you thinking? Are you kidding me? It's the worst take there is. It's like cheesy and it's dumb." And the guy did that with his eyebrow, and you know. so it comes down to taste and those little minimal decisions are what can make a bad spot good or a good spot bad. Do you do uh, most of the motion graphics on your videos? Well, I wouldn't call it motion graphics what I do. I'd call it more compositing. If, if there's a motion graphic component to any of the stuff that I do, that it's like sort of fake motion graphics by way of compositing, because I don't use After Effects. I don't even know the software. Um, uh, for everything I do, I've used Shake, uh, and that's just because I don't yet know Nuke. But um, Shake is like a film compositing software, so I mean, you can you can put anything into it you want and move it around and make flying logos and stuff. But it's not really suited for that. It's suited for photorealistic sort of more film cinema effects type compositing. Um, so that's the stuff that I love doing is sort of the more invisible uh, effects. I don't do any 3D like you have in some of your spots, which is really cool. I mean, like. I watched all your commercials today. Oh, really? What, what yeah. do you think? Really neat uh, stuff and very uh, clear, concise vision. Thank you. Do you have any criticism, Adam? Come on. Give me something. Uh, oh, no. There are, there are a couple of dodgy effects here and there. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, I really like the baby surprise, the peel a tray. Commercial? Really? Yeah, that that has nothing to do with the product. It's it's an interesting. No, it does. It's such a stretch, but I love the I love <laughs> the performances, and I love I love the photography is really nice. The only complaint I have about it is that I just wish that it wasn't if the ca- I wish that the camera wasn't sliding all the time. So that's what my DP uh, for that Jesse Dana, uh, the the great Jesse Dana, always says to me is that my my problem is that I always need to be moving the camera. I have that problem too, but you just got to use some, you got to show some restraint. I agree. And it's something that I, uh, I struggle with. I think that my favorite from a conceptual standpoint was the one where with all the people running into the canvas. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Splat. Yes. Yes. Which was neat. I loved their faces. I loved that first girl's face. Really interesting casting. You know, your great. casting is really interesting on and, and a lot of your stuff. Um, like, I mean, especially like the um, the uh, Jambox video. Like, there's mm-hmm. uh, there's a guy with like a really interesting mustache. Oh yeah, his name it. is Adam Arcos. Did, so, how involved are you in in casting and and what's what's that process like for you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I make the the call that my my girlfriend Roxana is my casting director. Um, yeah, so she facilitates the whole process and is great at it. And what we do and what we do, what we save a lot of time doing is we, um, we basically invite the first round of casting, which would typically be like a cattle call coming in, right? You, you, you look at a bunch of headshots online and you pick out the, however many 30 people you want to meet in person and they come in cattle call style and they come in one at a time and you say, Hey, how are you? And it's a really awkward, uncomfortable, horrible process. Um, especially at the non-union level where you don't quite know what you're going to get. And so you've got different levels of desperation and it's always just sort of a, it's, it's just an awkward process. So what we started doing, um, you know, a few jobs ago was inviting that first round of, of actors to submit their own, you know, videos that they shoot themselves, whether it's on their phone, their, 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 their phone from the, their camera from their phone or the eyesight camera or whatever. And we give them a place to put it, or they can put it up on YouTube and share the link privately. And it's just such a super efficient way of seeing. And it, they tend to be more comfortable on camera, and you tend to get a little bit more naturalistic portrayal of what they're, they're going to look like rather than you know putting them in the audition in front of a, a, blue, a blue background with cruddy spotted you know hard spotlight, and they're going to be peeing their pants. Whoa. And uh, so we started doing that, and it's just – it turns out to be really, it saves a lot of time and heart and, you know, headache. Um, I, did you watch the Woody Allen documentary? Did we, did I already ask you that? No, you didn't, but I, I saw, um, I saw part of it. I didn't see the whole thing. You I saw part, part of, of the second part. Yeah. I put up a link on my, um, on my, um, blog, uh, no, a, a quote, um, something that I transcribed from the documentary, um, about, Woody's directing style, which is very laissez-faire, and 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 he's also that way about his casting process too, which was so comforting to hear, because basically what he what he does is he, you know, he works with this world famous casting director, Juliet Taylor, and she'll give him a handful of people who he thinks who she thinks might be right for it, and he sort of picks one. Or sometimes if they're a bigger star, he doesn't even meet with them first before day one of shooting. Um, he'll. Uh, he just kind of has an, a knack for intuitively casting um, great performers. But for the, the secondary parts, um, you'd think that, you know, he's in the, he's in the casting call and he's, he's got a, a, a bunch of people coming in, just like normal, normal casting process, coming in one at a time and spend some time doing a, you know, reading the sides and reading with the casting director but no, Woody just had he, he somebody walks in the an actor walks in the door, within ten seconds he said, "Hey, hi, how do you do? I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to see you. I wanted to look look at get a look at you. Thanks very much." And yeah, and then and then they leave and they feel 
somehow <laughs> the, molested. yeah molested right yes. um but i mean if you're if you've got a knack for it right if you've got a knack for casting and you can tell whether somebody's going to look decent um on camera and whether they're going to bring to your role that you've got in mind what you think they should then it doesn't have to be much quicker than that i don't think i mean much slower than much much more work than that. So is is that sort of your process? I mean, do you kind of feel somebody out that way? Yeah, uh, none of the stuff that I do up this uh, up till now has has been that strenuous pro- uh, on the on the acting muscles. Let's say, like I I don't have heavy dialogue for them to do. I just, I need to know somebody that's prof- that somebody is professional enough to be able to, you know, <laughs> memorize their lines. Yeah, but I mean, and, at the same time, you. The, you know the the delivery in um, in a lot of the, the stuff that you do is isn't isn't cheesy you know in the yeah. way that it could be yeah, like it, that's, it, you go that's that that's just a matter of toning it down on the set you know like um, the direction that I'm most commonly giving is just like slightly less commercial slightly less commercial um, you know halfway back split the difference and people generally know and and if I'm speaking to them in this manner. And I'm talking the way I talk, which is, you know, there's not a lot of cheese in there. Then they're going to sort of respond to me in that way. Right. Yeah, because it, it seems like, you know, a lot of times it's like they're, they're like your buddy kind of telling you about, about the product. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it has that kind of feel to it. Yeah. And then if you, if you try to force that, then it can, it can look really bad as well. So it's just a very fine line. Uh, let, let me ask you about a couple, just a couple of your videos, real quick. Uh, the the JBL um, car wash video. I'm, I'm curious about how that that concept came about because it's it's like an it, it's interesting, you know, in that it's it's a demo video with kind of a, a twist ending. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you're like the, the like you're like the Shyamalan of of product intro videos. <laughs> uh, so that guy is my friend Dallas in um, Dallas Verdugo, who lives in Portland, and is awesome. He used to be the community director for Vimeo. Um, until he kind of left that to do his own thing. He's a filmmaker as well. And uh, JBL came through, actually through a PR firm. Uh, The PR firm called up and said, uh, we've got this, JBL's got this product that they want to get ready for, you know, to pitch to young people. And they were thinking maybe of timing it out to launch around Coachella and uh they they want they for some reason they had this idea of just display demoing it in a car wash or displaying it in a car wash maybe in kiosks or something and one of the people at the PR firm said I've got this crazy idea I want you to do like a 70s car wash parody you know like at the car wash disco style I was like oh hmm I don't do parodies, but if that's what you want, I'd be happy to rec- recommend somebody to you. And he was like, no, 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 no. Sorry, 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 sorry. And um, something that's fairly, you know, it's it's it just solidified in my mind that it's like one of the most important things for me as being integral to the to the process from the start is that I can't really, like the idea has to kind of be mine. And if it's somebody else's and they say, we want you to do this, then it's not going to work out as well um, because that sort of forces me to be lazy, creatively lazy. And then I'm just executing somebody else's 
I'm sorry, I got to shut that off. Um, I'm just executing somebody else's idea of what would be a good way to frame the the information, and then I make a bad video, which has happened a number of times. Recently, and, uh, or is it something that you sure. you, you learned about in the past? Okay. No, and yeah, recently. I. What do you consider uh, a bad video that you've done? Um. Specifically, name one. <laughs> you don't have. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not a good idea. <laughs> I name one on the, on the record. Um, I could tell you. I could tell you in an email. <laughs> um, but so then the idea came of like, okay, so they're into the idea of a car wash, and I can see that being kind of funny because um, the idea of the product is that it takes your sound in your car, and it makes it better. Um, so and it's also supposed to be really easy to use. So. So make it just, just just illustrate the ease of use by putting it in a sort of a, um, a chaotic en- environment, a chaotic and noisy environment that's also ha- happens to be aesthetically beautiful, with with the hoses and the brushes and everything going on in in, in all the in all the windows, and uh, you know that one we shot ridiculously cheaply as well. Um, and it it turned out to be really fun. I I enjoyed it. And then the the PR firm had a relationship with a local record label, so I got to use, um, you know, some actual some actual music. I forget who the band was, but um, that that was another perk to doing that too. Do you typically work with um, with ad agencies and PR firms, or are you typically no, work never. with the right? So you, usually you're always direct. Yeah, always yeah. direct with client. That was the only case where it had not been direct to client. On the small demons video, it looks like you're probably using like a, a motion control rig for uh, for some of no, that. No, no, no. Uh-uh. So when, when when some of those the animation you could never comes... fit a motion control rig in that in that space. Yeah, it was a real conference room um, in a production company called Pictures in a Row in Hollywood where, where the spot was edited as well. And that's sort of my regular, my go-to post facility. They're, they're great people. My, the editor, that was my first time working with him. Uh, and his name is Gregory Nussbaum. Um, and he, uh, the way that I found him is that the, the, the director slash visual effects, um, guru Stu Stu Mashwitz do you know who Stu yeah, Mashwitz is yeah I read his blog yeah his blog pro lost right um he was always a hero of mine and we became friends over twitter and he rec- and we had lunch in San Francisco and he recommended his editor friend Gregory in LA and Gregory and I met up and hit it off swimmingly he's just the sweetest guy ever and a really really exceptionally talented ed- editor um editor and post guy and effects guy and that was our first opportunity to work together. It just so happened when I was there meeting with them the first time, they have this exquisite conference room full of books and rich textures, which you wouldn't necessarily normally see in a production, com- in a production company office. And that was when I was conceptualizing the Small Demons thing, and it just made sense. Let's put it in here. Let's make it happen. So some of the effects, I'm just curious about how, how those were done. There's some moments where the animation stuff becomes tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you guys do that? Um, the only real object that I interacted with, there are two of them. The, the first one is the record, which was just, um, that was hung from a, 
fishing line, you know? Yeah. And that's awesome. And then, you know, you track that and you can, you motion track it and then apply that same path of motion to the rest of the virtual objects. Um, and then there's that hookup that sort of is really pleasing to, I mean, that was the moment where I think people told me people who watched it and didn't know what was coming told me they kind of a little bit gasped, you know, like, Oh, Oh, that, that was unexpected. And then, and then the videotape, but that was, that was just a real tight close up that somebody was holding it above my head, you know, for the shot. But, um, you know, it's effects are really fun. Uh, that's that's how I started out ma- making little videos um, when I was 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. Is I, you know, I just started trying to figure out how they could do special effects in in camera. And like when I said that the edit was the first special effect, I that's like I used to do the the thing where you you hold, you know, you press record on the camera. You hold an object in your hand. You have your friend press pause on the camera. You take the object out of your hand. Yep. You press record again, and the, and the, and then you play it back for your parents, and you go, "Look, it's, it disappeared." You know, and that that was my entree into telling a story with a camera. Right. I sort of became aware of you uh, this summer when um, a client of mine was showing me the the Groupon video that you did, and was asking if I could do something similar similar to that. And that's the one where the the woman's the, not the merchant video the, uh, right, uh-huh. the one before that. Have you noticed uh, a lot of people like aping your style in demo videos? Um, not necessarily that style, because I don't think that's that's not really an a unique original style in that one. I think it's yeah. No, I, I don't mean successful. that as, as, an, as an example. I just mean in general. In general, sure. Yeah, there have been techniques here that I've used here and there that have been you know specifically copied and pasted into other into the other videos but that that never bothers me I think um you know if somebody creates something and then somebody else tries to reproduce it good good luck to them but the, everybody that makes anything there's like an essence to it that's that's uh, irreproducible (laughs) that's unable to be reproduced tell me a little bit about the production of the Groupon Now consumer video oh it was really fun it was a it was a nice one to to work on we basically that was the only time I've ever done a traffic lockup Um, yeah was everybody an extra in that video yeah yeah there were something like I mean, there must have been like 40 or 50 extras, um, background people that are, you know, and there's, in that case, you have a f- the first AD that's working with me, the, f- the second AD that's um, assisting the first AD, and then the second, second AD that's, whose job it is to direct all the background. Um, and basically, you know, directing the background cast is a matter of, um, somebody telling, giving them sort of a routine to do, because that's not something that I should be necessarily thinking about on the first take. Somebody sort of choreographs the background players, and then you watch the first take, and then uh, you you realize that, y- you know, for whatever reason, the guy in the purple pants is, like, doing funny things with his arm, and he's crossing at the wrong time, and then you see him cross twice in the background. 
and it's totally distracting. And then you adjust from there. But that was a, that was a fun experience to be able to work with that many background players. And, you know, again, it's just a matter of having a number of resources and tools at your disposal. Yeah, it seems like when you did the the square video where you're walking through the street, uh, that you were kind of just doing that because there, there's there's people kind of looking the camera a little bit. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and that's just um, set up set up a seven D on a tripod and go for it. Yeah, right. With one with my friend David, um, you know, making sure that the camera's rolling, but you know, doing it for reals with an Alexa instead of a seven D is it takes a lot more people. So that was shot on, on an Alexa with a Steadicam operator. And, yeah. Uh, what, what was the crew like on that? That, that seems like a kind of crazy. Yeah, it was probably a crew of like 30 people or something. For the Groupon uh, merchant video, you have some dolly shots that kind of fade into each other um, and the movement matches really well. It looks, um, it actually looks like you're using a motion control. Uh, kind of system for that was that the case no it was a fake motion control where we just kind of tried to repeat the the motion as as closely as possible and you know it's sort of like it's a leap of faith but you got to assume that close enough for you know i always use use the expression close enough for jazz people want to believe you know people want to make that leap for you so you got to um Part of being a director and part of being a visual effects person is knowing what you can fake and knowing what you have to spend more time massaging. And it turns out that one of the things that are easier to fake is like is blending a dolly, <laughs> blending two dolly moves together, um, and having them. And I didn't even have to time warp at all. That was the that was the fun part. I mean, I had to do a, like a little bit of painting over the frame, but. Well, it came together smooth. really well because it's like the movement matches, you know, so well. It looks like, um, you know, it looks more complicated than than it sounds like it was. Yeah, thank you. It's sort of a, it's sort of a sterile spot, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, you work with 3D for one of the uh, the Jawbone videos. How how did that come about? What were the the challenges around that? Oh, holy crap! That was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, just a whole set of technical challenges. We thought it would be, it sounded really fun. My DP and producer and I were drunk on New Year's Eve in 2009, I mean 2010, sorry, with this upcoming spot for the Bluetooth head uh, headset to shoot. And I had this idea already of doing like, of doing a 360 sort of on a on a platform, on a pedestal and having it be sort of, 2001-ish looking. Um, but then the DP said, let's shoot it in 3D. And we were laughed about it, but we were just drunk, drunk enough to say, let's go for it. And then the client agreed to to do it. And we found the cheapest stereo rig we could in, uh, in LA. And we did it. And, you know, found, you know, I worked with an effects person who was very patient. Um, and this effects guy hated the whole concept of stereo of 3d which made it a little bit different <laughs> difficult to keep to, to stay on uh, on task and stay excited about it if somebody's bemoaning the process the whole time and As saying they're oh, doing it yeah. yeah oh god damn it you know and that's just like the trend right now is that we're, or a year ago at least. I, th- I don't know what the trend is right now in stereo filmmaking, but 
the trend a year ago was that it was sort of being pushed very heavily by the studios and the ones who were paying the price were the, was the visual effects community because they do they have to do what what amounts to many times the amount of work at higher resolutions and now the way uh Peter Jackson is doing it you know an order you know two times the frame rate so um you know, in order to combat the motion artifacting that goes on at 24 frames per second. So can you imagine that? Like, That's insane. I, d- I don't even know how that's going to look. I'm, I'm curious I, I, as to... Oh, yeah, I know. Like, I can't wait to see it as well. Yeah. But just the workflow from a, por- a, post- pro- a post standpoint. Nah, yeah, I, I don't know how it's sustainable. So what advice uh, would you give somebody who wants to get into what you're doing? Um... Figure out how to do it in your own voice, like really in a in a unique way, um, and experiment a lot before before you show anybody. And uh, you know, when 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 peop- when when my podcast was going strong and popular, uh, people you people used to always ask, "What do you advice do you have for somebody starting a podcast?" And I used to always say, like. Do, do one and then do another one. Don't be afraid to do a few of them and throw them away and figure out what your voice is before you have to, before you show anyone, because most people's tendency is to do one and then listen to it and go, Oh my God, my voice is terrible. You know, Oh my God, Adam, <laughs> I was listening to a bit of what we did yesterday. I couldn't believe how, how young and irritating I sounded. Like not when, at all. No, no. no, no. I listen- when you said I sound young, I didn't. I didn't realize like I sound like I'm twelve. You know, <laughs> Which, and it makes me wonder how anybody takes me seriously. Just yeah. listening to the 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 little bit that I listened to, it was an eye opener. No, it's- and you sound like my patient father. Uh, <laughs> just, just listening to it, you know, like about five minutes. That's kind of what I got out of it. I have old voice though. I have an old guy's voice. Um, yeah. So the the advice is: don't be afraid to experiment. It privately with finding your voice and don't get discouraged before if you don't if you're if you if you're shocked by the disparity between what your voice is uh and what it sounds like or what, what you know does that because there's always going to be a disparity between what we think we look like inside our heads and then what we, what we see when we see a picture of us it's human nature that's that's what happens but you know confront it be strong and you know that's that's it's just practice i guess sound advice uh you you mentioned you just did a shoot in in um rio de janeiro um what's what's that and what what do you have coming up that you're excited about um that was for airbnb that was another more international one because they they, they've got a bigger effort going on right now and that was a multi-country you know multi-location shoot and it was it was a lot of hard work and then Similar kind of video? Um, similar kind of video, yeah, but with different people. And then, you know, just got a number of interesting startup-y technology kind of companies going on. I'm always trying to look out for the thing that's going to sort of – nobody knows about right now, but is going to transform things a little bit for hopefully an industry. And I, and I feel like I've got one or two of those coming up in the beginning of next year. Excellent. All right, Adam, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ron. Uh, yeah, let me know if you want to talk again anytime. And that was the second part of my two-part Adam Lizagore interview. 
What a really awesome, generous, sweet guy. I'm trying to think of other adjectives, but I think that that kind of says it. Again, you can check him out at adamlissagore.com or sandwichvideo.com. The goal with this podcast will be to update every week or two weeks. Uh, we'll see how that goes. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way. Please put Spotcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on swayproductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye. Goodbye.